Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners, welcome to Buried Motives. And happy St. Patrick's Day. Top of the morning to you. <laughs> I love the accent. <laughs> that was awesome. People assume when they see me with red hair that I'm going to have an Irish accent or Scottish or something, but <laughs> I don't. <laughs> it's true. I've actually saw people stop you. Yeah, in the accent. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there's one person in particular that every time they come up to talk to me, they speak in an Irish accent. But really, you have no Irish heritage, isn't that right? No, I have. Oh, okay. Well, there, yeah, no, there's definitely like Scottish and Irish and stuff oh. in there, but I'm a good mix. Okay. I'm not predominantly just this one type. Gotcha. Yeah. But maybe that's where your red hair comes from? Probably. Well, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I thought I would bring you a case from the Emerald Isle itself. Ooh. Yeah. And while there's no actual leprechauns. Search- oh, I was just going to ask that. <laughs> like, is it about a leprechaun? Nope. <laughs> This case will bring you a twisted little gentleman with a murderous and bizarre way that he tries to fill his coffers with gold. Yikes. So this is a greed-inspired murder. Absolutely. Money is definitely the motive. We haven't had one like that in a long time, have we? No. Nope. Straight up, money is the motive. Wow. Have you ever heard of the term G-U-B-U? Goo-boo? (laughs) Goo-boo? No. It's a new one for me, too, and I'm just not that up on my Irish slang, but G-U-B-U is an acronym for grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre, and unbelievable. And that was the term used to describe the notorious, scandalous behavior that takes place in this case. Ooh. Can I just call it goo-boo? Because that sounds better. (laughs) This is a goo-boo of a case. Yeah. In 1992, those were the words used to describe the murders carried out by Malcolm MacArthur. Oh, wow. Very Scottish name, by the way, too. His parents were Scottish, but he starts out in Ireland. I would actually fit in. Like if I got to go to Ireland or Scotland, I wouldn't be the minority with my red hair. It's true. You'd be fabulous. I'm always referred to as the redhead. (laughs) (laughs) The redhead. Yeah. Just remember, it's got a capital T on it. The redhead. That's right. So Malcolm Daniel Edward MacArthur was born on April 17th, 1945, and was raised by his parents, Daniel and Irene MacArthur. He grew up on a 180-acre estate in Bremont Trim in the county of Meath and grew up accustomed to the finer things in life. I was just going to say, that's a lot of acres. Mm -hmm. That's a property. That's not just a home. Yeah, it was an estate. Yeah, for sure. From the outside looking in, it appeared that Malcolm lived a privileged life, but his father was a stern Scottish man, and Malcolm was his only son, and he would become the target of his father's violent ways when he wasn't being ignored by him. Irene would report that she once had to seek medical care for her son because his father had bitten him so hard that he required five stitches. Bitten him? Mm -hmm. He bit him. He bit him. What a dirtbag. Isn't that really bizarre? That is such an up close and personal injury to inflict on someone. Yeah, I can't imagine an adult biting a child. No. But that's what happened. And she wasn't much better of a mother than Daniel was a father. She found the boy a nuisance and had little time for him. She preferred more to spend time with her friends and socialize and garden. So why have children? I don't understand people like this. You don't have the time. You don't really want them. Why do it? Well, they only had the one. Right. Apparently they didn't like it. 
But then you live on this giant estate. You have money. Hire a good nanny. Well, that's what they did. They hired a governess. And Malcolm would spend the majority of his time with the housekeeper, not even in the big estate house. Oh, in her living quarters. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Both of his parents believed in the philosophy that children should be seen and not heard. At the age of 10, he was sent to a local Christian brother's school. There, he was viewed as an oddity because he was an ill-kept rich boy. Apparently, they sent him off and he didn't have like proper clothing. His shoes were all torn and ripped and they didn't even bother putting him in decent clothing. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's surprising. Yeah. Unknown to most, the family was struggling a little bit financially and his parents would later separate when he was a teen. Oh, so it wasn't all a bed of roses. No, not at all. It was believed that Malcolm had severe abandonment issues from being sent off to school and then from his parents' divorce. Malcolm would grow up into a man that was described by most as an eccentric who wore tweed suits and bow ties. Quite the fashion statement for the 1980s. (laughs) For sure. It's so hard when we start out on these cases because we're feeling, you know, sympathy towards this person and like, oh, you know, poor Malcolm. But I'm sure my opinion is going to change drastically. It will. He becomes a little bit of a dirtbag. And I think for this one, for myself, he just seems that much more of a dirtbag because he had this privileged upbringing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He had a leg up in the world where most people don't. Yeah. So his parents weren't great, but at least he had, it seems at least in his early life, they had the financial situation to afford him a governess and to teach him and to do all those things. Yeah. To still be cared for. Yeah. He wasn't slumming it on the streets like other kids that we have covered. Just the odd biting. Yeah. He was still abused though. For sure. And no amount of money makes up for that. No, not at all. And I think some people believe that if you have money, then you don't have problems. Right, which is not true. Exactly. At the age of 17, he went to study fine arts at the University of California. So it must have, his parents still must have had some money at that time. Oh, yeah, to send him overseas. Mm -hmm. And then he would also graduate from Trinity College in Dublin and Cambridge University, but would never pursue a profession officially. Instead, he enjoyed the life of luxury and was one of Dublin's eccentric socialites. Ooh. So he kind of followed in the footsteps of his mother. Yeah, I want that life. Mm-hmm. Can I follow in her footsteps, please? <laughs> right. <laughs> so he was quite smart and had many degrees and things like that, but he never actually went through for a particular profession. He probably felt like, why bother? Money's yeah. not a problem. In 1974, while Malcolm made a rare visit home, his father passed away suddenly in his sleep. Malcolm inherited 70,000 pounds from his father's estate. Ooh. And that would be around 650,000 pounds today or 1.1 million Canadian. Wow. So it's quite an inheritance. That is. His newfound money allowed Malcolm to step up his lavish lifestyle. He appreciated art and was a frequent guest of all the swankiest bars and restaurants in Ireland, always sporting his token bow tie or cravat. Quite the dandy. For sure. Little fashion icon. Again, I want that to be my life. I know. (laughs) Never having to work. Just going from party to party. Just never having to worry about money. Like, can you imagine that Mm -hmm. life? Well, I don't think it's that he never had to worry about money because that's what gets him into the trouble that he gets into. Okay. So he would eventually move to the Spanish island of Tenerife in early 1982 with his partner, Brenda Little, and their son, Colum, who was seven at the time. While indulgence and spending were definitely in Malcolm's repertoire of skills, saving and planning for the future were not. It wasn't long before Malcolm had blown through his father's entire inheritance. Oh, that's so maddening when you hear that. Yeah. Could you imagine just in eight years, 
he had blown through for our time would be $1.1 million. No, I could do so much with $1.1 million. (laughs) Crazy. And nothing to show for it either. No. Right? No, nothing to show for it. Parties. Mm Mm-hmm. In May 1992, after spending six weeks splurging in the Canary Islands, he began to make plans on how he could continue to support his lavish lifestyle. He left Brenda and his son behind in Tenerife, telling them that he was off to Switzerland to sort out his financial affairs. Instead, he headed back to Ireland, arriving on July 8, 1982, with a plan to carry out a bank heist. He had run out of money, and giving up his lavish lifestyle was not an option for him. Yeah, he was used to it. But why go back to your home country to commit the bank robbery? Wouldn't you want to do that in a different country and then flee home? Yeah, but I guess he felt like he had connections there and that he knew the systems. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed, as I'm sure you're going to find out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A bank heist seemed the most logical way to solve his problems. Well, it always is. Well, instead of going to work, he has multiple degrees. How many times do we joke about it? Like, well, I guess I better rob a bank. That's right. (laughs) To carry out the bank heist, Malcolm would need a few things. He bought a shovel and a hammer once he was back in Ireland. He also believed that he would need a gun. I can see your eyes going. Yeah, I'm like, what do you need a shovel for? Is he going to dig his way underground? (laughs) Like, He bought the shovel to hide evidence. He was going (laughs) to bury it, I guess. Maybe like burying his outfit that he's going to wear, like that kind of thing. I don't know. That's just what he bought. And originally he had bought a hammer as his only weapon. But then he kind of changed his mind and thought, maybe I need a gun. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Again, he's not the smartest guy. No, he's not. So once he had decided that he would need a gun, he thought that he would be able to steal one from the local shooting club. He began to frequent the shooting clubs and watch for an opportunity when he could steal a weapon. But his suspicious ways were picked up on by the shooters, and he was asked to leave the shooting club. (laughs) Oh, I can tell this is going to be a piece of work right through. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, stupidity is no less deadly. That is true. Malcolm would find his opportunity in a local newspaper advertisement. Donald Dunn, a farmer in Edendary, had a shotgun for sale. Malcolm rang him up and arranged a time to go and look at the gun. To get to Edendary, Malcolm needed to find a way to get there. And unfortunately for Bridie Gargan, he eyed up her car, a small grey Renault 5, when she pulled into Dublin's Phoenix Park on July 22nd. Bridie, 27, had just finished her shift at St. James Hospital. She was a young Meath native who had come to the park to do some sunbathing after a long nursing shift on a hot summer day. Patty Bryn, a gardener for the U.S. Embassy, was just getting off around 5 p.m. when he noticed Malcolm, dressed in a heavy pullover, moving towards Bridie in her car that was parked on Chesterfield Ave. In his statement to police, Malcolm, who was not known to the gardener, stood out because he was unusually overdressed in a combat jumper and tweed trousers, a bow tie, and a cap, all on a hot summer day. And he was hiding from tree to tree, making his way closer to Bridie. (laughs) That just gave me like little kid vibes when you're like playing cops and robbers or something and you're running from tree to tree. Yeah. If I can't see you, you can't see me kind of mentality. Yeah, I'll hide behind the tree even though I stick out beside on both ends of it. That's right. (laughs) As Patty watched, Bridie stood as Malcolm got closer to her and he lunged at her and (gasps) dragged her back to her car. What? Malcolm shoved Bridie in the back of her car and began to beat her on the head with a lump hammer that he had been concealing. No. 
Why? Why not just let her run away and steal her car? I'm assuming he wanted her car. Yeah, he was just after her car. He just needed it to get to this other appointment that he had to look at a shotgun. Okay, that's like the most pointless attack ever. Absolutely. Let her run off. Mm Mm-hmm. It just seems to make him even more of a dirtbag because yeah. it was so pointless. Yeah, I hate him already. Patty, who had originally thought that it was a mere spat between lovers, now realized it was much more than that and decided to intervene. He was more than 100 yards away at the time and Malcolm must have noticed him coming towards him because he stopped the assault. In an attempt to cover up Bridie's body, which now lay prone in the back seat, he haphazardly layered newspaper over her and climbed into the driver's seat of the car. What? When Patty got up to the car, Malcolm was pretending to read a newspaper. Oh, nothing to see here, sir. That's right. That's what he was trying to pretend. When he had already witnessed him beating this girl ruthlessly to death with a hammer. Patty knocked hard on the window and demanded to know what was going on. Malcolm told him to get lost. When Patty reached to open the car door, Malcolm beat him to it and pushed the driver's door open and charged at Patty. (gasps) He's just trying to be a good citizen. Mm -hmm. To Patty's recollection, Malcolm had a gun in his hand and it was pointed straight at him. The two struggled over the gun, but Patty lost his grip on it and Malcolm charged at him again. Patty surrendered and told Malcolm that he was leaving, but Malcolm just kept coming at him. It wasn't until Patty lost his footing and fell into a ditch area that Malcolm stopped threatening him. That's so bizarre to me. Like, why kill Bridie and let Patty go? Yeah, his decisions don't make any sense. Yeah. It's like, oh, he's in a ditch. Now I'm safe. No longer feeling threatened by Patty, Malcolm returned to the car and sped off, but not before Patty got a glimpse of Bridie in the back seat. He said that she appeared semi-conscious and was trying to get up. Oh, no. In her efforts, the newspaper that had originally been covering her fell, and he could see that she was beaten badly. Blood was everywhere. He described the scene as looking like someone had thrown a bucket of tomatoes all around her head and face. Oh, no. That grotesque sight was the last image of Bridie that he had, and he still continues to have nightmares about it today. Oh, I believe it. Patty regained his footing and raced off to try to get someone else on the street to help him raise the alarm about what he had just witnessed. A colleague eventually stopped and the two tried to search for the vehicle, alerting a security guard in the park to call the Gardaí along the way. So the National Police in Ireland are called Gardaí, and that's who he tried to alert. Hmm, there we learned something new today. While Patty was getting help to track down Bridie, Malcolm was receiving his own help to get away. In an unbelievable turn of events, an ambulance was passing through the park just as Malcolm was making his getaway. They saw the blood on the windows of the car and Bridie's hospital sticker on the windscreen and assumed that Malcolm must be a doctor racing to get his patient to the hospital. What? Oh no. They turned on their sirens and called out to him to follow them so that they could clear the path for him to get to the hospital. (gasps) Little did they know, they were clearing his path for him to get away. That's crazy! Uh Uh-huh. Malcolm followed the ambulance to St. James Hospital near Kilmainham. When the ambulance turned into the hospital grounds, he took off in another direction towards Rialto. Those ambulance drivers must have been so confused. Yep, and here they thought they were doing this great deed. Like, look, we're going to help this doctor. He's going to save this patient. And really, they just made it so that he could get away from the guardie that Patty had alerted to him. Whoops. Yep. That would be me. Did I do that? (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to be helpful, but sometimes it backfires. A few hours later, Bridie was found barely alive on South Circular Road. She was unconscious in the backseat of her car still. Malcolm had left her there to die while he went off searching for bus tickets to get to Fingloss. 
Bridie was taken to Richmond Hospital and would succumb to her severe head injuries four days later. Aw, I was hoping she was going to survive. Nope. So he didn't even go to get the rifle? No, that's coming next. But now he's like, oh, I'll ditch the car and I'll get a bus to go get the rifle instead. Yep. Like, why not do that in the beginning? This was so pointless. Yeah. Bridie didn't have to die. Not at all. And it was so random. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She had just finished her shift. And so she was just trying to relax. Yeah. While the Guardi of Dublin searched for the overdressed man that was responsible for bludgeoning Bridie with a hammer, Malcolm continued on his quest. He still needed a gun to pull off his bank heist. The gun he had pulled on Patty had been a replica, so it was just this fake gun. Oh. But for the heist, Malcolm wanted the real thing. Well, now he's already killed somebody. Mm -hmm. So who knows what he's capable of? Yeah. Malcolm traveled to Fingloss, an area familiar to him because that's where his partner Brenda was from. On his way, he stopped at the Flinglaw House pub and shaved off his beard, which I'm assuming was to avoid recognition, but he didn't change the way he dressed at all. He just kept up his stylish attire throughout this whole thing. (laughs) You can't sacrifice fashion, Melissa. I know. Malcolm then traveled to Edenderry by bus and arrived there on Saturday, July 24th. Even with all of his escapades, he managed to get to Edenderry a day early for his meeting with the farmer. Malcolm stayed on the harbor overnight and the next morning read the paper while drinking a carton of milk, possibly reading about Bridie's attack since it was splashed all over the headline news. Oh, I bet. The brutal attack was front page news, and Ireland, it seemed at the time, was having a string of bad luck with murderers. An unusual thing for Ireland. In 1982, there were only 24 murders reported on the whole island. Oh, wow. For the whole year. Yeah. And today it has an equally low crime rate. So this was really big news when it hit. At the time of Malcolm's crimes, police and media were scrambling a little to see how Bridie's attack fit in to the mix of all these other murders that they were experiencing. Around 10.30 on Sunday morning, July 25th, Malcolm and Donald Dunn, a 27-year-old clay pigeon enthusiast, met at a local post office to look at the shotgun that he had for sale. Their exchange was witnessed by several church members of the nearby church as they were let out of Sunday morning mass. Oh, that's a little eerie. You get out of church and you're staring at a murderer and you don't know it. But he stood out to everybody because he was so fashionably dressed. Malcolm, (laughs) you got to blend in, son. Well, he shaved his beard off. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So now he's even clean shaven and well dressed. Just making him stand out more. It just makes his bow tie pop a little bit more. Right? The two agreed that Donna would drive them both out to a bog between Edendary and Rothagen to a place where Malcolm could test the gun out. The bog was a few miles from the center of the town, and it was close to the old Edendary Clay Pigeon Shooting Club. When Donald handed the gun to Malcolm, Malcolm coldly pointed it right back at him, and before Donna had time to defend himself, Malcolm shot him in the head, execution style, from three yards. What? Mm-hmm. Malcolm then tried to hide the body in brambles on the peat nearby. He then took off in Donald's Ford Escort and returned to Dublin. The car was later found near Central Bank on Dame Lane in Dublin. Donald's body would lay undiscovered until 5 p.m. later that evening. That's crazy. He's on a rampage. Just no regard for someone's life at all. No, he's just single-minded about this bank heist that he needs to pull off to get money. And I'm going to kill all witnesses that see me. Well, definitely not all witnesses because there's a ton. That's true. That do a see whole him. church of people getting out saw him. Yeah. But why not just buy the gun from the guy and be done with it? Yeah, there was no need to kill him unless no. he didn't have the money. Yeah, but <laughs> hit the guy to the ground and take off with his gun. 
you know, you don't need to kill him. Same He's with Bridie. He could have just stole her car. Yeah. Yeah. Or like shove her in the car and then shove her out later on. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense what he does. No. And it just makes him more of a dirtbag. It does. So Donald's body would eventually be discovered by a family who were enjoying a picnic on the bog Aww. when their seven-year-old followed a trail of blood leading into some of the overgrowth. That's when they found Donald's body face down in the brambles. That poor kid. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a therapy bill there later. And again, there's so many victims, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even just discovering a body like that as a family. So traumatic. Yep. The Guardi were called to the scene and began searching for witnesses and evidence. Several of the witnesses described a man wearing a tweed overcoat, a peaked cap, dark pants, and stylish horn rim glasses. The suspect that the witnesses were describing had a distinctive cultural accent and was fashionably dressed. The Guardi started to think that this might be the same smartly dressed man that had attacked Bridie. With additional searching of both crime scenes, the Guardi matched fingerprints from Malcolm's discarded Sunday paper to ones found on the wrapper of the shovel that had been discarded in the chaos of Bridie's attack in Phoenix Park. Whoa. So they knew now that for sure these two attacks were connected. Yeah. I just looked up a picture of him while you were talking. (laughs) That's him, right? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) He looks like a spoiled little. Yep. It seems like he has no common sense at all. And he's just so privileged, even with his upbringing of being abandoned and left behind. He just seems to have this air of privilege to him that he doesn't. Yeah. That it, he just has a total disregard for everybody else. Right. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. in this picture, he just reminds me of like a whiny little crybaby. I don't know why I'm getting that vibe from this, but I totally am. Oh, just wait. Ugh. Dodging the police, Malcolm continues his quest for riches. On August 4th, he went to Kalini to the home of U.S. diplomat Harry Bailey. So remember, he's an affluential. He's a socialite. He has That's all these kind of connections. Mm-hmm. Using his charm, he convinced the man, who was a stranger to him, that he had once attended a party at the residence some years before and had become enamored by a view from a particular window in the house and would like to be permitted to take a photo of that same view. Okay. So he tells this big story about wanting this photo. It's plausible, Mm -hmm. but would you still let this stranger in? Well, Harry did. Well, he looks pretty harmless, right? In his little bow tie. He looks like a gentleman. He's not some ruffian. So he's like a wolf in sheep's clothing, really. Mm-hmm. Once inside the house, he threatens the diplomat with the shotgun and told him to turn over a substantial sum of money. Harry convinces Malcolm that he will do so. He just needs to retrieve his checkbook from a room upstairs. Malcolm agrees to let him do this. And Harry escapes and went straight <laughs> to the police. <laughs> he didn't follow him? No, he just let him go. He's like, okay, I'll All just right. wait here. I'll wait right here, but you better come right back. That's right. Yeah, you're right. Not the sharpest tool in the shed. No. When Malcolm realizes that Harry had fled, he decided to do the same thing. His next stop was the home of an old acquaintance. This was the home of the attorney general. Oh, wow. Malcolm, you're not making some good choices. The Honorable Connolly had a connection with Brenda Little and was talked into letting Malcolm stay with him for a short while. The family had previously stayed in Connolly's second apartment at the beginning of 1982. While at Connolly's home, Malcolm played the perfect house guest, if you discount the fact that he did hide Donald's shotgun in an upstairs bedroom. (laughs) Well, at least he's not shooting people. Yeah. He attended social events with Connolly and even made small talk about the crazy murder cases that were plaguing Ireland at the time. Malcolm was hiding in plain sight right under the nose of the attorney general, the man responsible for legal and constitutional advice in Ireland. 
That's crazy. Mm-hmm. You can tell that Malcolm has not really been held accountable for anything in his life, really, because he just feels like, oh, I can hang out with the attorney general and... Yeah, this won't have any repercussions. Like, why would he be suspicious of me? Right. No one's going to figure it out. As the manhunt continued, more and more witnesses came forward with descriptions of a sophisticated, soft-spoken, cravat-wearing man. Malcolm made the most bizarre move yet in his criminal escapades. He called up the Dalkey Guardy station the day after the attempted robbery to tell them the incident at Mr. Balling's house had been just a prank gone wrong. All that was just a misunderstanding. He hadn't actually tried to rob him. (laughs) Sure. This this call was so bizarre to the officer on the other end of the line who could hear classical music playing in the background. Malcolm even left his name with the officer. What? Mm -hmm. Hi, this is Malcolm. I just want to say that this was a... This is a prank. A prank? You don't need to investigate it any further because it was a prank. You don't tell them your name, Malcolm. No, he's out of touch with reality, this guy. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, though, later on, he can't plead criminally insane. They actually find him competent. Yeah. Dumb, but competent. Yeah. Stupidity is an insanity. But all- other people's stupidity can drive you insane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with all these reports of this gentleman suspect, and now this bizarre call with classical music, the guardie worked on a hunch and started canvassing the area that the call came from. It wasn't long before another resident in Connolly's building identified that there was a similar cravat-wearing man staying with the Attorney General. On the evening of Friday, August 13th, the Attorney General's apartment was surrounded, and in an unusual turn of events, a taxi driver was on his way to deliver hacksaw blades and Perrier water to the well-spoken gentleman that was staying at the Attorney General's home. Hacksaw blades? So he was having these things delivered to him. And they believed that the hacksaw blades were to saw off the shotgun so it would be easier in his bank heist. You don't have it delivered. Wow. I guess this is how you do it when you live a life of privilege. That's right. You're not going to go get those hacksaw blades on your own. You wouldn't muddy your trousers going to the hardware store. Not at all. No, that's peasant work. (laughs) It's so bad because often I think like as we research more and more cases, we kind of feel like, why would you do that? You should do this. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and not that we think about how we would actually murder somebody, but it's pretty clear, Malcolm, you could be doing some different things to get away with murder. Well, and really murder isn't his end goal. This bank heist is the end goal. I know, but he's already murdered two and threatened a third. Well, fourth, actually. Fourth. With Patty, yeah. So this taxi driver shows up as the police are surrounding the apartment and they ask him what he's doing there and he tells them. And this gives the guardy confidence that they have the right suspect. (laughs) Could you imagine you think you're surrounding a murderer and they're like, what are you doing here, sir? I'm delivering hacksaw blades (laughs) to the fine man in this apartment. (laughs) Yeah. Just Red flag. Yep. (laughs) So the 12 armed officers enter the house of the attorney general and arrest Malcolm without incident. Yeah. But could you imagine what it would be like to know that you're entering the house of the attorney general? Yeah, you'd be treading a little lightly, I think. Mm -hmm. Malcolm was questioned at Dunlary Guardy Station and gave a 21-page statement to the Guardy where he admitted to both murders, saying, I affirm that I am responsible for the deaths of Nurse Bridie and Mr. Donnell. Wow, I was not expecting that. To say that Malcolm being arrested at the Attorney General's house was a scandal is a vast understatement. Oh, for sure. To make matters worse, Connolly left on his planned vacation to New York the day after the arrest. Oh, that doesn't look good. No. 
Feeling that he had been an innocent bystander and duped by Malcolm, and therefore had no need to be in the country, with all the publicity, he continued with his vacation plans. Unfortunately, this wasn't the case at all, and he was ordered to return to Ireland and was made to resign the day he arrived back in the country. Oh no. Mm-hmm. That's sad. So, by all official statements made by the government, Connolly had nothing to do with Malcolm's plans and had no knowledge of them. He was just this person that Malcolm knew, so he was kind of mooching off of him to stay at his place. He was doing a friend a favor and got his life destroyed for it. That's right. Poor guy. But there are still some that remain suspicious of just how much he knew about it, even after his death in 2016. Fueling the fires of that suspicion was that Malcolm's court cases still remain inaccessible to the public to this date, and that he left Brenda Little and Malcolm's son considerable inheritances in his will. Oh, the attorney general did? Mm-hmm. Oh, I was all for defending him, but that is mighty suspicious. Isn't that really suspicious? Yeah. And that's a whole side story that we could look into, but I thought, huh. At the time, all the newspaper reports and anything that the government put out said that he was not connected in any way. But after kind of going through this case, it does look a little suspicious, especially when he leaves like a substantial inheritance to both Brenda and Colm. Yeah, that is weird. But I just can't see like... I don't think he would have had anything to do with the other murders. No, because they were so random. They were so random. And it was just with him trying to rob the bank. And I can't even see the attorney general trying to rob the bank. But I don't know if he had confided with the attorney general and he was knowingly harboring. Harboring. And that's what I think maybe. But then why would the attorney general include Brenda and Colm in his will? They weren't any relation to him. Yeah. Maybe they were better friends than we are aware of. Maybe. It sounds like when he went away on vacation, they would house sit for him. So they did know him well. Mm -hmm. And maybe he just felt bad. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he took care of them after Malcolm was such a dirtbag. Yeah. So Malcolm was assigned a defense attorney, Patty McEntee, an incredibly smart lawyer, although I'm not sure that's how the victim's families would describe him. The attorney had his work cut out for him. There was an abundance of evidence against Malcolm from both crime scenes and huge documentation for his motive. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. I would like to see him try to get out of this one. Did you say the lawyer's name is Patty? Mm-hmm. How there's, many Patties are there's there? There's so many Patties. <laughs> Patty must be a common name in Ireland. It must be. <laughs> so one of the most damning pieces of evidence for his motives was a lengthy to-do list that was found at Connolly's residence that outlined how Malcolm planned to kill his own mother for the rest of his inheritance. Whoa, that took a turn. So it wasn't just the bank heist that he was planning. He had all of these little side plans. The note stated, electrical fire with a faulty plug attached, adapter left in the wall, perhaps a fuse adapter plugged out. None of my fingerprints make sure hers on the handle. Take away one of your fuses if it appears there are too many. And then says, and the body of fire, fuse to be left behind unplugged. Like these are all like random notes that they're finding. Why would he write it down? In other notes, he refers to bringing leather straps or tape, a gag, a blindfold, an additional rope for tying up across the chest. MacArthur even reminds himself to wait to make sure his mother is dead. That is cold-hearted. Uh-huh. Colder still, though. He states, Wait for a while to ensure death is final. During this time, take in important items into my possession. So Ma- while mama's dying, I'm going to 
Raider House. Mm -hmm. He says, make an inventory of other important items too so that I can check on their presence when I arrive for the funeral. He even left letters from himself to his mother in the house to make him look like this loving son. (gasps) Whoa. That part is kind of smart, actually. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To think of, oh, I'll leave these lovely letters. But how conniving, right? Oh, so conniving. I just can't believe how he goes from just, you know, being this regular person to all of a sudden turning into this cold-hearted dirtbag murderer. Well, I think that it just shows that he really never had any big attachments. His attachment was to his fashion and to his social life and right. and maybe not interpersonal attachments. Yeah, he never bonded with his nanny. No, it doesn't sound like it. Oh, and maybe he went through different nannies. Maybe it wasn't the mm-hmm. same one. Or if he had bonded to them, he was taken away from them at an early age and shoved in boarding school. True. In light of this murderous plan against his mom, there were also questions raised about his father's sudden death, with some believing that perhaps Malcolm had poisoned him because he just died all of a sudden yeah. on a very rare visit that Malcolm actually paid him. Right. Mm-hmm. That could be. Is he a psychopath? Like, is there any testing that he has done that... No, Because it sounds like he has no empathy at all. No. And he does have some psychological assessments done just prior to the trial. And they don't come back with any findings like that. In fact, they come back with he's not a danger to society in any way. What? Yeah, I know. Um, hello. Ask Bridie how she feels about that statement. Isn't that insane? That is. Mm -hmm. At the same time, allegations and suspicions were arising about Malcolm's past behaviors. The public were crying for justice. They were very convinced that this aristocrat was going to get off with a slap on the wrist because of his money and his connections. With all the evidence and the media attention, his lawyer knew that he needed to get the trial done and over with as quickly as possible to avoid a lengthy sentence. But he also knew that if Malcolm pled guilty to both cases of murder, that his sentence would be twofold. Right. So now when you said all his money, he has none. Are they talking about his family money? Like his well, mom's it, money? Is she paying for the trial? No, but he was presented as being this aristocrat figure. And right. so the public viewed him as having a whole bunch of money. Right. He ran with the rich dogs. That's right. And so therefore he was going to just get a, this slap on the wrist because mm-hmm. he was this affluential person. Right. And he knew all the right people. Yes. And I think that was more the thing. So in Ireland, it seems that there are very few murderers that actually plead guilty even when they confess because it carries with it an automatic life sentence. But when going to trial, that could result in a much lesser sentence. Most of the murderers in Ireland only spend about seven years in prison if they behave themselves. Really? Mm -hmm. And so his lawyer was trying to make sure that he wasn't going to confess to both. He knew he had to confess to one of the crimes, but he didn't want him to confess to two because then he would end up with two life sentences. And if he got one life sentence, then he knew that with good behavior, he might be out of prison in seven years. That's wild. Mm -hmm. Seven years. It's so shocking then. They have such low jail times, but also such low Low murder rates. Yeah. I would not expect those two to coexist. No. And it seems like their reform program is much different than ours. Before a prisoner gets let out, Mm -hmm. they're not set out on a parole. They get day passes and then those day passes gradually get more and more progressively longer. Mm. They ease them back into society then. Yeah. Interesting. And they go through a set of prisons where he goes maximum security, medium security, and then this kind of low security where they have jobs and they take training and then they get day passes. And Hmm. well, it seems to be working for Ireland. They have a low crime rate. 
So Malcolm's lawyer convinced him to take a deal with the DPP. He pled guilty to Bridie's murder, and Nola Prasakwi was entered for the murder charge on Donald Dunn. This equates to a charge being dropped because of insufficient evidence, which was definitely not the case in Donald's murder. Yeah. There were numerous witnesses to put the two together, and the murder weapon was found with Malcolm when he was arrested at the Attorney General's house. So why are they saying there's not enough evidence? This was just the deal that was struck up. It was an unprecedented deal that was made. No kidding. Much to the dismay of Donald's family. Yeah. Oh, that would feel like a real slap in the face. He wasn't even charged with the murder at all. That's terrible. Everything was just dropped. McEntee believed that with the pretrial psychological assessments of Malcolm that showed that he could not be declared insane, but that he was also not a danger to society. He's totally a danger to society. Mm -hmm. But with these psychological assessments, his lawyer believed that he would be out in those seven years because when he came up for a review, it would show that he wasn't a danger. And as long as he behaved himself in prison, he would get out very quickly. He'd be even more scary when he gets out because now... He wouldn't be running with those rich dogs and have those connections. And he still isn't likely going to be willing to work. He'll just be right back at it. But his lawyer was wrong. We'll get into it. Oh, he does more than seven years. Oh, yeah. Way more. Oh, good. And I think that kind of falls (laughs) into the Connolly conspiracy is because he actually serves so much more time than anybody else. Oh. Malcolm's whole official trial lasted less than five minutes. What? Mm -hmm. Five minutes? Less than five minutes. How? Wait, how? Less than five minutes for the trial? It's taking you longer than five minutes just to tell me some of the story, like some of the facts. Well, they went in and the lawyer presented this deal that they had made with their DPP and offered to read the evidence and the judge declined it. What? So there's no actual evidence read into this trial at all. Yeah, something fishy is going on. And rightfully so, it outraged a lot of people. So there were no victim impact statements. There was nothing. It was over in five minutes. I've never heard of that before. No. But that was what his lawyer's plan was because he wanted this quick trial because he thought that that's how he would get a lower sentence because he didn't want all of the details spread out into the media any more than they were. Right. Because they knew people were out looking for blood and Malcolm's image of being this rich kind of playboy of never having to work a day in his life did not sit well with the everyday people of Ireland. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so his lawyer knew that you couldn't spend a lot of time in the court having all of those details kind of brought out and why he was, you know, planning this heist, why these people were murdered was actually for him to get more money and it wasn't going to go over well. And so he really fought and he like maneuvered his way to getting this super short trial. Right. But five minutes is insanely short. That is really insane. But his plan kind of backfired a little bit. The public were enraged and every time the possibility of release came up, it was fought by the public and the victim's families. At the time of sentencing, Malcolm was taken to Mount Joy Prison. And what a name for a prison is that? Mount Joy? Mount Joy. Yeah, I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a prison reserved for those that can't mix with the general population for their own safety. Well, I could see that, yeah. Mm -hmm. But despite the original feeling that he would not be able to fit into prison life, he actually became quite popular in prison with fellow inmates. Because he's so dashing. Yes, (laughs) he's debonair. He was eventually transferred to Shelton Abbey and Arbor Hill, both lower level security prisons, and was gradually given increasing freedoms, including day passes to attend Christmas with friends and family. Wow. 
In 2012, at the age of 66, after spending 30 years in prison, much longer than his lawyer had anticipated, and remember, the average for murderers is seven years. So this is a long time. So what was he actually sentenced to? Life in prison. Just life. Yeah. So he made a deal for Birdie's murder that he would serve life in prison. But he just assumed he'd be out in seven. That's right. Okay. And so for them, then life is life. It's not like a 25 year sentence. It's like life. Okay. Yeah. But they have this kind of reform program that they get reviewed every so often and most only spend seven years. Right. Which is great. If mm -hmm. you have a reform program that is working, that's fabulous. Yeah. And obviously it is. Their crime rate is really low. Yeah. But for some reason, even though he was this model prisoner, every time his case came up for review, even though he had this psychological assessment that said he was no danger to society, Donald's family thought that they were saying, hey, he hasn't even been charged for this murder and he's admitted to it. Great. In 2012, at the age of 66, after spending 30 years in prison, he was finally released. Oh. At the time, he was one of the longest serving prisoners in Ireland. He now walks the streets as a free man, keeping a low profile while still attending art exhibitions and book signings are all around Dublin. Book signings. So he's made a book? Nope. He just goes to what? like He enjoys <laughs> art and culture. And so he goes out to book signings. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. I'm just going to go yeah. hang out at our local Indigo and like just have my pen. I'll sign that for you. Yeah. <laughs> He's he's not signing them. He he enjoys going to authors' book signings. <laughs> you meant he was signing books. No, that's like oh, he made a book deal. No, no, he enjoys going to art <laughs> exhibitions and authors' book signings. Like he oh. likes to converse with these highly intellectual okay. people. My bad. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night in my defense, <laughs> but I totally thought Melissa meant he was signing the books. No. <laughs> okay. Never mind. <laughs> when asked about his time in prison and his release, Malcolm portrays himself as the victim, claiming that he spent double the normal amount of time spent in jail for murder and makes no recognition that he was never held accountable for Donald's murder. What so, a dirtbag. Yeah, it's just all about me. Like, yeah. I had to spend so much time there. And he talks about how if he wasn't released at this review, he was going to take it right up to the highest court to have his case reviewed. And oh. No one feels sorry for you, Malcolm. I'm sorry. Well, he goes on to complain that there are certain establishments that I like to frequent that I don't wish to be known in now. And I'm afraid now I have to hide my identity. And that worries me. Oh, it's so sad that you have consequences to your actions. Yep. So he can't hang out at all of his swanky restaurants anymore because people know that he's a murderer. Cry me a river. So crazy, right? Yeah. No sympathy here. And this is like the full kicker for me who we work to make our living, right? Yeah. For a man that had never worked a day in his life, he proudly declares that he is now retired to reporters who ask him what he plans to do with his newfound freedom. (laughs) The same thing I've always done. Sit on my butt. Nothing. (laughs) Go to book signings. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully he's retired from his murderous ways as well. I hope so. Yeah. And he, I'm assuming his mom has probably passed away and he probably did get that inheritance. His inheritance. Oh, my Lanta. <laughs> yeah. So that is the grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre, and unprecedented case of Malcolm MacArthur. Wow. What a dirty little leprechaun. <laughs> yeah. Such an unusual criminal. That really is. Yeah. Well, it was interesting to learn about Ireland and their judicial system. That seems to be working for them. Yeah. I'm quite impressed. <laughs> but next week, you're bringing us a case from England, right? Yeah. We're going to stay in the UK. And this case will kind of bring up the opposite about 
reform systems. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, because the criminal that we're going to be talking about next week has a very different experience with the justice system. Hmm. That makes me wonder, did Malcolm really get off because he was affluential? <laughs> he probably did. He got a lesser sentence. Well, you can't really say he got a lesser no, sentence, that's true. Because he did. He spent double the time that most murderers do in Ireland. Right. But maybe with all of his records being closed and only having that five-minute trial, no evidence presented, something fishy was going on there. And maybe they figured the longer we can keep him locked up, the longer we can keep him quiet and we don't have to worry about it. The rumor mill is going on this one, for sure. Well, I think maybe Malcolm should do a book deal and (laughs) spill all. (laughs) Share the tea. (laughs) I'm sure he would love the fame of that. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm just kidding. We've talked about that before. How we don't really feel like murderers should be able to profit from their crimes. No, not at all. But that's it for us this week. We hope you guys have a wonderful St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, celebrate and have fun, but be safe out there. See ya. Bye. So have you, have you ever heard? <laughs> How many green beers have you had today, Melissa? <laughs> None. It's a good day. <laughs> Very Irish name too, by the way. It's Scottish. Oh, right. I already said that. I guess it was I Scottish. Know. Okay. A farmer in Edinburgh. 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 To get to Edinburgh. At St. James Haas. Jane? James. Oh, James. Okay. I feel like I'm swearing on my marge. Had just finished her shift at St. John's, St. James. Sorry, I screwed you out because I said John's. That's St. At St. James Hospital. Don't laugh. John, James, (laughs) or Jane? Come on. (laughs) And when pouty, 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 that the burgundy, the (laughs) burgundy. Now I'm all these. Connolly. Connolly. Burgundy. Family. Deadly. Robbery to tell. <laughs> I was going to say robbery. Robbery. <laughs> Sorry. He called up the Dalkey. That's again an E. He called up the Dalkey guard. Guardy. <laughs> and said, give Bur- money to me. <laughs> the burglar. Burglar. <laughs> Can't say it. Uh, burglary. Burglary. <laughs> Robbery. Oh, that's a lot of E's. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna say incident. Okay, from the top. One more time. No way. No. Okay. In other nerds. In other nerds. <laughs> oh man. Keep it green. <laughs> Keep it green. <laughs> Stay away from little green men and women. Green women are not good either. Right. <laughs> Especially naked green women who yeah. tell you to murder. <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> if they're blue, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Send help. We're not okay. <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? 
We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.